Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Well, good morning. I wanted to start this morning with a picture and a story. So uh, has anybody ever jumped off of a bridge into a river or lake before? Maybe a lower percentage than I was expecting here in the room. Make your comments online. Let us know if you've done this. Don't worry. Well, maybe not online because then, you know, if law enforcement, don't say where or when. Statute of limitations hopefully has expired. But uh, Micah and Aaliyah and I, several years ago when they were much younger, jumped off of a bridge into a river. It was the Manistee River. This is the actual bridge. I found a picture of it to show you this morning. And the arrow shows you where we climbed over the guardrail from the road, climbed down onto like that pier that holds the bridge up, and then we jumped into the river and we start floating downstream. This picture is taken from a boat ramp that's just downstream from the bridge. So the idea is this. We've got this nice manageable height for kids their age. Still fun for me as well to jump into the river, you pop back up out of the water, and then you got to start swimming straight toward the shore. Like, to use an engineer term, perpendicular. Yeah, this way for you guys. Perpendicular to the shore. Meanwhile, the, the current pulls you downstream. And if you're going straight this way and the current pulls you that way, you end up at the boat ramp and you climb out, you do it again, you celebrate, you say, burr, that was cold. And, uh, and it all goes well. So uh, lots of fun, lots of dead points, as long as everyone gets out at the boat ramp and doesn't like float off downstream, right? Everybody made it out okay. No one was injured in the filming of this adventure. That was a joke. One of those jokes. Okay, so for us, it was really obvious that there was a current, right? As we're climbing over the guardrail and we're getting down and looking at about where we're going to jump in, the water's like rushing by. It's obvious. There's no surprise for us. So what we did is we prepared, right? I talked to Micah. I talked to Leah. I'm like, hey, once you jump in, here's the deal. I'll jump in with you. We're going to swim this way and we're going to get out. Sound good? Sound good. Okay, let's go do it. So then we go and we did it. But I want you to think for a minute. Are you aware of the spiritual currents that flow in our culture? Do you know what you're jumping into every day when you wake up and get out of bed? Do you have a plan to get to shore? Or are the cultural currents, (laughs) easy for me to say, are the cultural currents taking you wherever they will? Interesting question, isn't it? Well, in September and October, we're going to be doing a series here at New Day called Beautiful Resistance. We're going to take time to recognize the cultural currents that we swim in every day. We're going to talk about how to swim perpendicular, (laughs) counter to the cultural currents, and make our way to shore. When we resist the current and make our way to a God-designed destination, it's a beautiful thing to behold. It really is. And just like my kids had a blast with their dad jumping in the water, making their way to shore, and having a lot of fun, you get to do that with your heavenly father. You get to jump into every day. Yeah, there's currents, but there's a whole lot of fun to be had, and he's going to go with you. You don't have to swim alone. The framework for our series is based on a book. 
It's called Beautiful Resistance, which is why the series is called Beautiful Resistance. Brilliant, wasn't it? Well played, Bill. Well played, right? So in this book, the author's name is John Tyson, and he is just fascinated with a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, but he lived in the time when uh, the Nazis came to power in Germany. He was a German guy. And he started to recognize very early on that the Nazis were more than just a political force. They were starting to have influence in the church as well. And the, the German evangelical church was aligning more and more with the party and less and less with Jesus Christ. So Bonhoeffer took a stand. He signed something called the Barman Declaration, which was loyalty to Jesus and not the state. And then he started this underground seminary. I won't try to pronounce it. But this seminary was intense. This group of students would wake up every day and they would pray together. They'd read scripture together. They'd sing songs of worship together. They'd do their work together. It was a lot like a monastery. It was very structured, very immersive. And word got out about what he was doing. And a good friend, a reasonable friend named Wilhelm. Pretty good name. Probably the German of William, which is why I like it. See what I'm saying there? But um, Wilhelm Niesel came to check things out and possibly confront his friend Bonhoeffer about taking things a bit too far, about being a little too extreme. And so Bonhoeffer said, come on, let's go for a walk. And they walked to a hilltop. And from the hilltop in the distance, you know what they could see? German fighter planes, Nazi fighter planes, and soldiers scurrying all about. It was a training ground for the Nazis. See, Bonhoeffer's heart was to train pastors to resist the current that he saw flowing in his country in his day. They needed to be deeply grounded in their relationship with God, in the scripture, and they needed to build strength and prepare themselves for what was to come. And sure enough, many of these students in the seminary would later be arrested by the Gestapo. So their training was very important. What Bonhoeffer said to his friend, standing on the hilltop, in view of the Nazi training ground on this side, and remembering the seminary they just came from on that side, he said this to his friend, this must be stronger than that. And the same is true today. We might not climb the nearest hilltop and see Nazi fighter planes, but there are spiritual forces of evil at work in our day too. Those forces are baked right into our culture. You see, we live in enemy-occupied territory. But the rightful king has landed. Jesus came. He lived on this earth and he died. He took a stand and now he invites us to join him in his beautiful resistance. In this series, we will explore how to stand for God's truth in a culture of confusion and compromise. We'll hear the call of Christ to live with devotion and conviction. And we'll look will look for ways in our lives that this can be stronger than that. We see the beautiful resistance all over the life and ministry of Jesus. And I wanted to point it out. You know, there were currents flowing in Jesus' culture and in the place and time that he lived and walked the earth. 
there were Pharisees urging him to align with a certain interpretation of Scripture, religious people. There were zealots who urged him to help them overthrow the Roman occupation of their country. There were nationalists who urged him to agree with separation from Samaritans, from the Romans and other Gentiles. Many lived in his day with this like who's in and who's out mindset. Who's religiously clean and unclean? Who's righteous and a sinner? And oh, don't associate with those people because they're on the outside looking in. Those were some of the currents in Jesus' day. You know, again and again, Jesus made a beautiful resistance to all of them. And I want to give you a few examples. One time, they wanted to trap him with a political current. They wanted to pull him right on downstream. They came to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And what Jesus did was swim right perpendicular to that question. He said, let's see the coin. Show me one. And they showed it to him. And he said, you know what? Whose inscription is on it? Whose image is this? It was a picture of Caesar. And he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. As we know, as we read the scripture, you are the image of God. You're his inscription on this earth. They tried to trap him again in a religious current. They brought to him a woman caught in the act of adultery. And they said, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act. And Moses said, we should stone her. What do you say? Well, everybody's watching. And what did Jesus do? Right toward the shore. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Well played, Jesus. How about that nationalism thing? What did Jesus do in those currents? Well, he commends the faith of a Roman centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant. He meets with a Samaritan woman at the well, which is radical. He swims right out of those currents, bringing people along with him who are on the outside looking in. How about purity laws, clean and unclean stuff? There's one there too. I've got a picture of it on the slide. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. It's one of the best scenes in The Chosen. That's what that picture's from. Check it out. Watch that episode. It's so good. But Jesus just radically demolished barriers when he touched that man. Nobody would have touched a man with leprosy in in that day. He would have been religiously unclean, and you would have risked you know, catching a pretty, pretty ratty, uh, <laughs> a pretty bad disease. I don't know what word I was shooting for there. Jesus is a rabbi, especially him, you know, like a model. People expect him to be a model of religious um, purity. And what was more important to him was that man who was suffering. So can you see how Jesus resisted the currents in his culture? Can you see it in those stories? Can you see the beauty in his resistance? Here's the most important question. Are you ready to join him? Every sermon in this series will be framed by a contrasting statement. We'll be looking at how a godly characteristic has to resist a a worldly one. Words today, words. Words. 
<laughs> How a godly characteristic must resist a worldly one. The titles of these sermons are things like this. Love must resist hate. Unity must resist individualism. Hunger must resist apathy. Celebration must resist cynicism. Discipline must resist convenience. But today we're going to start with worship must resist idolatry. You know, when we read the Old Testament, it can be hard to connect with the nations of Israel and Judah when they're worshiping idols. I don't know about you, but I don't struggle with building Asherah poles in my backyard. So when I read that, it's a little hard to connect sometimes and realize how does this apply to me today? Do any of, we can talk. The prayer team's available after service. If you have an Asherah pole that needs to be chopped down and burnt, we can help you with that. But we live in a society without reference point for idolatry. We have neither the cultural framework nor the worldview to support it, and this makes us all the more susceptible to it. That's John Tyson from the book. We don't have a framework for it, so we're susceptible to it. Whether we realize it or not, there are strong cultures of idolatry that flow in the United States in 2022. It's really easy to write off the topic of idolatry. I've been going to church for a long time. I've done it. You know, Sometimes we don't mean to dismiss the subject, but we don't have somewhere to file it in our brain, right? The whole, like, I don't build Asherah poles thing. But if we dismiss or fail to understand the currents of idolatry that flow in our society, we will be unable to resist them. So today we're going to take this topic in three parts. What is idolatry? What does 21st century American idolatry look like? We're going to break it down a little bit. And three, how can our worship be a beautiful resistance? Does that sound good? Cool. Sounds good to me too. (laughs) If you said no, I don't have another plan. So it's a good thing you said yes. (laughs) So what is idolatry? Um, I think I have a definition in here and we'll get to it. But the better way to start with a biblical framework for idolatry is a story. (laughs) And it's more interesting, right? (laughs) So I want to tell you a story about a man named Abraham. God came to Abraham and said to him, hey, you're my guy. I want to walk with you. I want you to be my guy. And your descendants, I want them to be my people. And they're going to walk with me too. They're going to be my treasured ones in this world. They'll be my people and I'll be their God. And I'm going to bless them and they're going to be a blessing to the whole earth. But then God's special people were enslaved in Egypt. And it broke God's heart. But he rescued them out of the hands of Pharaoh. And he did it in a miraculous way, didn't he? He brought them out in a way that showed that he was God. Creator, all-powerful God. He's more powerful than Pharaoh. He's more powerful than the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. He brought them out and then he brought them through the Red Sea. And they watched the sea fall back together on Pharaoh's chariots and army. And what happens next in the story? They come to a mountain. And they get to the mountain to meet with God. And it's time for covenant. Time to get married. God's inviting them into an intimate relationship now. He's already shown his love for them in rescuing them from Egypt. 
And now it's kind of like he says, hey, I love you. You want to get married? <laughs> Let me read you a little bit of that part of the story. It's from Exodus 19, uh, chapter 19, verses 3 through 8. It says, Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you're to say to the Israelites. And after Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And then all the people responded together saying, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. Are you seeing the promises back and forth there between God and the people? They're making wedding vows to each other. You know, in our wedding ceremonies today, we do this sort of thing. We say something like this, I promise to love and cherish you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And then we say this line, and forsaking all others, keep myself only unto you for as long as we both shall live. Well, the vows that God's people make to him share that same sentiment, don't they? The first commandment is, do not have other gods before me. And the second one is don't make an idol for yourself. To be married to God means to forsake all other gods. To keep yourself only unto him for as long as you shall live. Just like our wedding vows say. It's almost like they're based on this, isn't it? Funny. You know, our wedding vows acknowledge that there's going to be ups and downs, good times and bad, but we promise to remain committed to our spouse. We promise to forsake all others. We promise to reserve all our marital energies for this relationship only, no others. It's the same with God. He's promised to stick with us through good times and bad, sickness and health, rich and poor. He's with us for it all. So if you're a follower of Jesus, what that means, what you've committed to, is to return the promise, to stick it out with him to the very end. And you're promising to reserve all your worship energy for only him. No other gods. No idols. Webster's Dictionary does define idolatry. And now we've come to that point. It says that idolatry is the worship of a physical object as a god. And it continues and says, it's an immoderate attachment or devotion to something. And that's a perfect fit, isn't it, for the biblical framework? Idolatry is worshiping a created thing instead of God. Worshiping a created thing instead of the creator. Or giving away devotion that really belongs to your God. Tyson says in the book, Idolatry is worship of an unworthy object. The countercultural revolutionary act is to direct our heart's deepest devotion toward and only toward the creator of our beings. Idolatry means giving away something you promise to save only for him. 
your devotions. This is why you'll find prophets all over the Old Testament calling the people of God to repent for their adulterous ways. Doesn't that make more sense now? The prophets will tell the people that they're acting like a harlot. They've made wedding vows to God, but they're running around with other gods, other things, giving away their devotion in other places. I have to share some bad news with you guys. (laughs) We've all played the harlot too. Every single one of us, myself included, we violated our marriage vows to God. But check out how he handles it. This is the good news. Jeremiah 3.12, he's calling his people. He says, return unfaithful Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not look on you with anger, for I am unfailing in my love. Wow. We've all played the harlot, but this is how God responds when we do. He calls us back, and his love is unbroken. It's unfailing. Wow. He's so gracious. He's so full of loyal love and faithfulness. He will receive us back because he is so, so good. That's good news. (laughs) That's very good news. Okay, so now let's walk out onto the bridge over the Manistee River together, metaphorically. It's a three-hour drive. We don't have time for that, guys. But metaphorically, let's take a look at our own culture today and see what current is flowing beneath us. What are we jumping into when we wake up every day? But rather than me spout off what I think it looks like, I wanted to ask you. So hopefully you're ready to participate this morning. I'm really counting on you right now. When you look around the world that you live in today, where do you see people giving away the devotion that belongs to God? Money, their phones, (laughs) politics, 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 the internet, Hollywood, fantasy football. I just rejoined the league after some years off, Adam. Fantasy football. I didn't over-research it, guys. If I did, I'd be seeing the prayer connect. Good, good. What else? Any other ideas? Oh, too many at once. I couldn't catch it. There was one over here. The stock market. Career. Followers, like on social media. Yeah, I know exactly how many I have. I'm just kidding. I don't don't have a clue. (laughs) Good job. Those are a lot of the ones I was thinking of too, you guys. And um, you know what's interesting? They're not all bad, are they? Like, there's a lot of good in the phone. There's a lot of good in having a career and providing for your family. There's a lot of good in, um, I don't remember what the other ones are that you said, but there's good in each of them, typically. Timothy Keller said this, We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Wow. Tyson writes in the book, he puts it this way, idolatry is to turn good things into God things. So I wanted to try to break down a couple of examples of things that become 
idolatry in our lives, things that we devote ourselves to, and dig a little deeper than just what is the thing and try to see a little more what's at the root of it. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> so jobs, that was one I was thinking of too. Great job, Brandy. You thought of the same one as me. <laughs> jobs, they're good. They provide for our needs, food on the table, roof overhead, et cetera, et cetera, right? But sometimes we can cross that invisible line of devotion and make it an idol. So what's, what's in that? What comes out of a job? Money. That's what I thought of. <laughs> money comes from a job. But why would I want more money? To buy stuff, right? Well, what would I buy with more money? Maybe a new car, bigger house, maybe a boat. Boats are cool. I've been spending time in South Haven recently. Maybe a vacation home. I don't know. Maybe more vacations. I don't know what you guys spend your money on. These are some ideas I came up, come up with. But inside all of those is like this desire, isn't it? Either for like comfort or pleasure, at least in the ideas that I came up with. And so the devotion to the job isn't pointed toward the place where I work. It's pointed toward me, my comfort and my pleasure, isn't it? Let's think of another example. How about, maybe this is a weird one, maybe this resonates with you. How about being really into parenting? You know what I mean? Where like, you're really, really proud of your kid. You really, really put a lot of effort into being a good parent. It's a good thing, just like Timothy Keller said. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. <laughs> you should spend time with your kids if you have kids. But why would somebody take that across that devotion line? Why would it become something that they devote more to it than God? Maybe for the purpose of being seen as a success or for the approval of others. And do we want that because we care so much about other people? No, it's because we care so much about ourselves. We want to be seen as a success. If others approve of how good we are as a parent, then maybe it means we can feel good about ourselves. So it's, it's self-focused again. All right, one more example. Entertainment. You know, think of fun with friends, playing games, watching interesting things, right? These are good things as well. It can be a lot of fun. I enjoy some of these uh, things as well. But when it crosses that line into idolatry, what's going on? Why would somebody show so much devotion to entertainment? Maybe because it helps them escape the troubling parts of their life. Maybe because it soothes the pain that they feel. The same can be said for alcohol, drugs, and pornography, too. These are ways that people escape from their painful reality and get a little chemical satisfaction to get through the day. But what's at the root of it? Again, I don't want to feel this pain. I need comfort. I need to be soothed. It's an inward-focused devotion. The self is at the center. And I think this is at the root of American idolatry in the 21st century. It's to turn ourself into a God. It's to worship our own comfort, success, desires. So the world is telling you that you are the most important thing, that you are at the center of the universe. Hey, find your truth. You be you. You only live once. You can be whatever you want to be. Does that sentiment kind of sound familiar? 
the root message is that you are the God of your own life. And if you only buy our product, <laughs> your life will be even better. So go for it. But the truth is that God is God. He is at the center of the universe. It's in him we live and move and have our being. He created it all, and in him it all holds together. To be married to him is what you're actually created for. That's where true fulfillment comes from. And he's so, so good. He would even die for you. He did die for you. He gives good gifts to his children, and you can trust him. That's the truth. But the lie is this. God's holding out on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we are in the Garden of Eden with the tree of life, which is a pretty good gift. But don't you think this other tree looks kind of good too? Don't you want to try it? If you do, you'll be like God. Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to reach out and take it for yourself? Why wait for God to slowly meter out blessings to you and good things? Isn't his timing weird sometimes? Why does he make you wait so long for good things? Wouldn't it be better to just go ahead and take it for yourself right now? It's right here within reach. Just go ahead and take it. That's the idolatrous current that flows in 2022 as well. Rather than a serpent, it's delivered over your screen and the billboards and the culture that swirls all around us. It's the same as it was in the very beginning at the core of it all. It says you can't trust God, but you can be your own God. You can make your own decisions. You can define what's good and bad on your own terms if you only take hold of it. Pleasure? Anytime. Just grab it. Comfort? Go for it. Wealth? Take what's yours and hate the people who have more than you. Identity? You can define that for yourself. You can be whatever you want to be. Define your identity in this world however you like. That's encouraged. That's what idolatry looks like. That's the current we see as we stand on the bridge and look down at what we're going to jump into each and every day here in the United States in 2022. So how can our worship become a beautiful resistance to that current? I think our first step is to look inside and see if some of those currents flow right through our own heart. That's a good place to start. I want you to remember that idolatry is a deception. The tricky thing about being deceived is you don't know you're deceived. <laughs> That's the tricky thing about it. So we need to look with a fresh perspective and with objectivity. We need to search our heart and test it and see if there's any wicked way in it, like David said. So I want to give you a couple of different angles or perspectives to look in your own heart. In the book, he quotes a lady named Elise Fitzpatrick who said this, How can I tell if I'm worshiping the blessings that I desire or God? Well, if you're willing to sin to obtain your goal, or if you sin when you don't get what you want, then your desire has taken God's place. 
and you're functioning as an idolater. So let's use an example to illustrate this idea. Let's say someone has a strong desire for a fulfilling sexual relationship. Remember, like Tim Keller said, that's a good thing. It's actually God designed for you to have a fulfilling sexual relationship when you're married, within his design parameters. But if you're not married, but you're willing to sin to obtain that goal, it's an idol. If you take sex outside of marriage, it's an idol. Or, or if your mindset is this, why would God ask me to wait so long for something good? I can't take it anymore, so I'm going to use pornography to bridge the gap until I can get married. Or I'm going to use it to fill in where my sex life isn't fulfilling if you are married. Either way you come to it, sinning to get what you want or sinning because you didn't get what you want shows that that is an idol. And that can apply across a broad range of, of issues. The crazy thing about idols, you guys, is they never deliver. <laughs> they never deliver on their promises. In fact, they bring destruction in the very place where they promise to bring you something good. There's a quote also in the book that says, pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, you will never have enough. If you worship beauty and sexual allure, you'll feel ugly. If you worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. If you worship intelligence, you'll always end up feeling stupid. <laughs> it's going to chew you up and spit you out, is what he's saying. But it's another way we can look for idolatry in our heart. If you feel chewed up and spit out in an area of your life, you might want to ask yourself the question, what is it I'm worshiping here? What is it I'm worshiping here? Why do I feel this way? Maybe I have an idol that's chewing me up and spitting me out. The world's full of people feeling that way. They worship nothing but themselves, maybe not on purpose, but it's killing them. They're caught in a current that's taking them downstream and a waterfall is coming and they don't even know it. Our worship, our devotion to God is a beautiful resistance to that. It's a beautiful example to a world caught in a current. It could show them a better way. As you swim to shore, as you swim to your heavenly destination with your Father God, you show the way. You show a better way. You show what true fulfillment looks like in your relationship with Jesus. That is truly beautiful. People need to see that when all these lies are baked into our culture. Let's go back to Webster, all right? The dictionary definition of worship says to regard with extravagant respect honor, or devotion. So to worship God is to give him extravagant devotion, undivided devotion. Or in the words of Jesus, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's what it looks like to worship. The answer to idolatry is not to beat it down with religious activity. That just doesn't work because this is a marriage. It's a relationship built on love. 
So the key is to realize how much God loves you, to see how he has rescued you from your slavery, (laughs) brought you out into freedom on eagle's wings, like he said to his people at Mount Sinai. And then to fall in love with him, to return the devotion that he's given to you. That's how we worship him. All the rest will take care of itself. We'll read our Bible because we love him. We'll pray because we love him. We'll go to church because we love him. We'll be kind and compassionate to others because we love him. If we live this way, we will make a beautiful resistance. Our worship will resist idolatry. We'll find our way out of the current that flows in America today, and we'll show others the way out. Marilee, would you come in close? Wow, that was so good. So good. Um, Carrie, are you here? Could could you guys close with the song we did, the, There Will Be No Other Gods Before You? I feel like that song is a great way for us to respond and sing that again together. Um, so let's just stand. And... Um, Yeah, Lord, we've been challenged this morning by this sermon. We've been challenged by um, just the explanation of what idolatry looks like in our culture in America right now Um, and how that, that current that we're jumping into is you can be your own God. Worship um, the things that you want and the desires that you want instead of God. And so um, right now we just, let's just repent um, and say we're sorry for any way that we've broken that that covenant with God. Bill's talking about the marriage between the church and God, and we, we enter into a covenant of devotion. And, um, and we often break that, but we need to just repent when we do and recommit to be undivided in our devotion to him. And so, yeah, Father, um, why don't you guys just repeat after me and I'll lead us in a prayer together. So, Heavenly Father, we repent for in any way that we've entered into idolatry where we've given something away that rightly belongs to you, where we've had divided devotion. We repent for taking good things in our life and expecting those things to satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. We repent for the areas where we've put ourselves as the center, where we've turned ourselves into a God. So right now we just acknowledge you as God. And put you on the rightful throne in our life. (laughs) 
So let's just sing that that song and um, declare our devotion to God. <laughs> 